Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. It's so good to be here together this morning, isn't it? It's great to see you all this morning. We're so very glad to have our visitors with us, and we're so very thankful to have those who are uh, participating in worship with us online. We want you to know we're always here for you. It's wonderful to be together, but if you are ever in need of service, Bible study, help in any way, we want you to know that the Bullard Church of Christ cares about you. We're here for you. Uh, we, we got to meet several people who came to the uh, back-to-school bash yesterday, I think made some positive connections with folks. Uh, one family in particular that all of us there talk to don't go to church anywhere, but uh, have uh, came, to, came to our event and met a lot of people, had a good time, and so we're very thankful uh, for those kinds of opportunities God gives us, and we hope that those continue as we uh, seek to do his will and reach lost souls with the gospel of Christ. We continue our uh, message this morning, our series this morning on That's a Good Question, and we're talking today about guilt and forgiveness. What about guilt and forgiveness? That's a big subject, and I think forgiveness and guilt uh, are ones that we ought to hit on uh, regularly because they're ones that really affect us deeply and we all uh, can relate to these subjects in one way or, or another. Guilt is a universal human experience, isn't it? We've all experienced some kind of guilt. Guilt's that awful feeling you get in the pit of your stomach and you just feel it all over your body when you know you've done something wrong and it just it just hurts you, it just bothers you, it haunts you, and you'd almost do anything you possibly could to get rid of it, to make it right. And that's someone with a conscience, right? Someone that has a moral compass. They, they feel horrible when they do something wrong. And maybe it wasn't as far as a sin, but maybe it was something that was embarrassing. Maybe it was something that was just unintentionally hurtful or bothersome to somebody. Uh, there's or a missed opportunity, but of course, certainly, and even more importantly, is is sin. When we when we don't do the things that God would have us to do, when we go against His His will and His word and do something wrong, but you know, you should feel guilty if you do something wrong, shouldn't you? Shouldn't you? You know, we we kind of have some messages in our culture that tell us. Uh, don't feel guilty. You shouldn't feel guilty. You should feel liberated and free, and there's no, no reason for guilt. Well, if there's no guilt, then that means there's, there's no such thing as right and wrong. And every civilization since creation has had some kind of code about what was right and wrong. Even civilizations that didn't worship God, there's some kind of belief because God has created us with an inherent moral code and there's some kind of belief about everybody, about right and wrong. And some people are way out there and there's no moral compass for various reasons. And I think on the other end of things, you can be too hypersensitive about that. And every little move you make, you think you hurt someone's feelings and did something wrong and just eat up with guilt and, and all of that. That's, that's unnecessary and it holds you back. And I hope we can kind of speak to all of that. But most importantly, our guilt when it comes to violating God's word to do, doing uh, wrong, sin in his eyes. You know, guilt really is that check engine light 
that should be coming on in our lives. Like that check engine light that seems to always come on all the time. I think they program it to just come on at random times. It's a day that ends in Y, so it's time for the check engine light to come on. But guilt ought to be a check engine light. In other words, when, when we feel it, we ought to pop the hood and look under there and see if there's something that needs to be taken care of. So, so it can be abused and it can work against you, but, but in a healthy sense, it ought to help you know, I think something's wrong that I need to address. I might need to get something fixed. Adam and Eve really established a human pattern for us when it comes to uh, guilt and sin and forgiveness. And to this day, we're, we're still dealing with it. When they tried to escape their guilt in the garden in Genesis 3, we see that after they sinned in the garden, what did they do? They first tried to cover it up. They covered up the, their own selves because their eyes were open and they realized that they were naked. So they tried to cover themselves up. Then they tried to hide from God. And, and don't we do these kinds of things too? And then they played the blame game. They blamed one another and then they blamed Satan Instead of taking responsibility for what they did, they wanted to blame everybody else for their wrong and say it was their fault and say, instead of owning up to the fact that they themselves had sinned. They wanted to rationalize and justify their behavior. And it seems uh, like the more they could blame somebody else and get the burden on somebody else, then the less guilty they would be that they would feel. They didn't want that feeling of guilt. The problem was they knew they were guilty and there was no getting around it. And of course, they couldn't trick God. Now, from the first sin, God gave man a way to address sin. And we don't see it initiated in Genesis chapter 3, but from Genesis 3 on, God uh, set forth that we could make sacrifices. He's talking about his people in the Old Covenant, sacrifices to him in different ways for sin. And, 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 and that, that, that's a big subject in the Old Testament. Now, the author of Hebrews talks about that in Hebrews 9.22, where we read, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So God required sacrifice, blood, which was the life, of the animal that was sacrificed because God was always after our lives. And it wasn't because he's an ugly, mean, uh, 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 violent God, but, but that's, the, that's the price. That's how severe sin against a holy God is. The holy God, I should say. So God required sacrifices. In Genesis 4, from the beginning there, we see Cain and Abel offering their sacrifices. And it goes bad real quick, doesn't it? And Cain kills Abel. And there's some guilt there. And there's, there's some uh, forgiveness that needs to happen there. But animal sacrifices, we learn in Hebrews 10, could never actually take away sins. Look at Hebrews 10.4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And take away is the key phrase there. That they couldn't take away the sins. All they could do is cover the sins. And so during that time, for all of those many years, that's what God set in place for their sins to be covered 
so that uh, uh, they could be covered and, and they really didn't have the full forgiveness that was coming. And there was a reason for that because the Old Testament was always pointing us to the coming Savior that we find in the New Testament. So ever since sin entered the world and therefore the guilt of sin, everything was pointing to Jesus. Look at Hebrews 10, uh, look, scoot over to verses 8 through 18. When, when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Verse 9, then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He who does away with the first in order to establish the second, the old covenant, to establish a new covenant under Christ. And by that, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Those sacrifices that the priest did over and over and over again could never actually take away their sins. So look at verse 12. The author tells us, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins no more and their lawless deeds no more. For where there is forgiveness of sins, there is no longer any offering uh, for sin. So Jesus came and offered himself once as that perfect sacrifice to take away sins under the old covenant. The priest had to go every day over and over again to offer animal sacrifices that could only cover sins. So it was incomplete and all pointing us to Christ. In John chapter 1, when uh, John the Baptist was out doing what he was doing, he noticed Jesus coming towards him. And what did he do? He said to those around him in verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now go back to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 24 through 28, where we we read, for Christ has entered not into holy places made by hands. He's contrasting that with the man-made temple of the Old Testament, which are copies of the true things. But Christ has entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Verse 25, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin. How? By the sacrifice of himself. A different and perfect and better sacrifice. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment... So Christ, having offered once, been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. So this beautiful and amazing description of 
what Jesus did for us, that's the good news right there. And every Jew who heard that at the time should have just shouted with joy and say, the Messiah has come. That's the good news. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ right there in the book of Hebrews. Now, look at what God does with our sin and our guilt through Jesus. First of all, he puts it out of sight. Look at these scriptures, Isaiah 38, 17. In love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction, for you have cast all my sin behind your back. It's out of sight, God says. For that child of God who's become a Christian, a New Testament Christian according to scripture, your sin is out of sight. It's not even seen anymore. And your sin and your guilt are out of mind, Jeremiah 31, 34. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. The sin is gone. I don't even remember it. And your sins are out of reach and your guilt is out of reach, Micah 7, 19. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. They're out of reach. That's how far gone he takes away our sins and our guilt. And finally, they are out of existence, Isaiah tells us. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, for his glory, out of his love for you, and I will not remember your sins. They're out of existence. They don't exist anymore. They've been washed away. That's what Jesus does to our guilt and our forgiveness. It's interesting that on the night that Jesus was arrested and illegally tried, and then faced the crucifixion that morning. Two men close to him betrayed him. Right there at the same time. Look at Luke 22, verses 3 through 6. Then Saint Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was one of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Judas, that night, betrayed the one he had walked with and learned from and heard from and seen the miracles. And he claimed he believed. But Jesus had told him, one of you is going to betray me. And Judas betrays him for money. But look what happens later after he's arrested. Matthew 27, 1 through 5. When morning came, Judas has watched all this play out. All the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Look at verse 3. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But Judas, it's too late. It's out of your hands now. And, 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 and did Judas think, oh, nothing that bad's going to happen? Did he think it could never go that far? But it did because he'd betrayed 
the Savior. And of course, this was a part of God's plan, and this was not a surprise to God or to Jesus, but it was too late for Jesus to turn back the hands of time because what was happening was already in motion. And so what did the chief priests say to him? Look at verse 4. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. They didn't care. They couldn't care less. These were the religious leaders of their, uh, of their time. They couldn't care less how Judas felt, that he felt he, he understood he had done wrong. And look at verse number 5. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. Such a terrible, terrible end to this error that he made, his sin and guilt. He was torn up over his guilt that he had as a result of his sin of betraying Jesus. But it's important to know that the way he dealt with that guilt, and guilt can get you down further than you ever thought it could possibly take you. Guilt can make you think all kinds of dark, scary things. Guilt can get you in a bad, bad place. And, 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 and Satan jumps at the opportunity to do that to find a way to get you. And Judas handled that in one of the worst possible ways. Suicide is never, ever an option for handling, for dealing with, for addressing anything at all. It doesn't make anything better. It doesn't uh, uh, fix anything at all. And Judas made such a terrible mistake in his guilt. It never fixed anything. It only makes things worse. Regret and guilt should never lead you to self-destruction. Regret and guilt and sin should lead, lead, cause you to run to God, to, to run to His presence and want to, Him to just pick you up and hold you because that's what He wants to do when you're in those moments. He doesn't want you to go and do what Judas did. He wants you to run to him so he can hold you and love you and forgive you and lift you up. The other person who betrayed Jesus that same night and in Luke's same chapter of 22 was Peter. It was right after this. It was during this time when Jesus was on trial illegally. Uh, look at verses 54 through 62. We see that Peter was following at a distance while Jesus was in the priest's house for his trial. And three times people asked Peter and said to Peter, you're one of his, you're with him, aren't you? I can tell. And three times, just like Jesus told him it would happen, he denied him, he rejected him, and he said, I don't even know the guy. I don't have a clue who he is. And as soon as he did that, Look at verse 59. And after an interval of about an hour, this is the last, the third denial, uh, an, an, uh, a still another insisted saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Verse 61. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Can you imagine making eye contact with Jesus right there at that moment. 
And that rooster crowed and you remembered what Jesus said. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and what did he do? Peter wept bitterly. We don't know how long he stayed there weeping. We don't know how many days he wept for what he did, torn up with the guilt and the shame and the regret of denying the Savior after one of his own had already betrayed him, knowing what was going to happen to him. Peter betrayed him like Jesus did, but his, his choices were different in terms of dealing with uh, his guilt. He was convicted by his sin, and he knew Jesus knew it. When the women went to the tomb, it's interesting to find Jesus after he had been buried. The women went to the tomb to look for Jesus, to take care of his body, to attend to his body, and an angel was there, wasn't he? Look at Mark 16, 1 through 7. They were scared when they saw an angel, and the angel said, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go and tell his disciples. And then what did the angel say? And Peter. You see that? Go tell his disciples and Peter. In that moment, Jesus wanted Peter to hear. It's okay. I've risen from the dead. Because Jesus still had work to do with Peter. Peter didn't take things to the... Uh, extent in the wrong direction like Judas did. Peter wept bitterly over his guilt. He was sorely convicted. And he said, go tell Peter that he's going before you to Galilee and there you will see him just as he told you. In John 21, we find Jesus appearing to his disciples by the seashore. They had gotten in the boat and they said, I'm going fishing. And Jesus called out to them and he said, cast on the other side. And they did. And then they started wondering, who is this guy? When Peter figured out it was the Lord, what did Peter do? For the second time, he didn't walk on water this time, but he threw off his outer cloak and he was close enough to shore where he could just jump in the water and swim and run, you know, while walking on the ground and get to the shore because all he wanted was to get to Jesus, the one he had betrayed and denied back there before he was crucified, the one he had rejected, the one he felt so bad about doing that to the one he wept bitterly over and the one who, who told him, make sure Peter knows it's okay that I've risen. He said, I've got to get to my Savior. After they ate breakfast together, Jesus had some quiet time, some intimate alone time with Peter. And three times he asked him, Peter, do you love me? And three times Peter said, Lord, you know, I love you. And every time Jesus said, Feed my sheep. What was different with how Peter responded to his guilt, his sin, than the way Judas responded? Look at 2 Corinthians 7.10. Paul helps us understand. For godly grief produces a what? Repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Do you see that? Godly grief. What Peter had was godly grief over his sin. And that produced repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas Paul says worldly grief 
produces death. And that's exactly what happened to Judas. Because worldly grief won't fix your problem. You'll turn to drugs and the bottle and all kinds of illicit sinful things trying to cover up the sin and, 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 and mask the guilt and the pain instead of letting Jesus deal with it and take it away from your life. Judas resorted to worldly grief that told him worldly knowledge, worldly uh, philosophy and thinking said, just end it. You can't get out of this. You've messed up beyond any kind of way to repair it. But that's never, ever the way to handle anything. Peter remembered who Jesus was and realized that he couldn't change what happened yesterday, but he can change and be in control of what's going to happen today. And he can do something about tomorrow. And that's what we need to see in Peter's godly grief. You can't fix what you messed up. You messed it up and you broke it and you're, you feel terrible. But Jesus offers forgiveness and all you can do is live today and live tomorrow if you're blessed to do so. Peter went on to pen these words in 1 Peter chapter 5. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Peter lived this Peter knew what he was talking about. Peter had experience with this. Can you imagine Peter even getting choked up writing this? Because he knows what he went through. And he's so thankful to God for turning things around in his life. Look at verse 7. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. He cares for you. He knows you're guilty. He knows you messed up. He knows you sinned, but he cares for you. And he wants you to come to him. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. Doing what? Seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You're not the only one that's messed up. You're not the only person to ever have done what you did. You're not the only one to feel uh, uh, horribly guilty. You're not the only one who's broken stuff. Everyone else has, and everyone lives with those memories. But how do you deal with them? Do you turn them over to Christ and let Christ bring you the healing that you need, or do you not? So instead of giving up, Peter humbled himself to God, and God lifted him up, we see. Peter cast all his anguish and all his guilt and all his sorrow and all his pain on God, and, and knowing that if anyone could help him, it was his heavenly Father who could help him. Peter understood that Satan was right over there, roaming around, hoping Peter would give up, hoping Peter would resort to worldly grief instead of godly grief so he could pounce like that hungry lion and take him out like he did Judas. In Revelation 12, 9 through 10, John called Satan the deceiver of the whole world and the accuser. And that's exactly who Satan is. And that's exactly what he wants to do with your guilt and with your sin, is deceive you 
and accuse you and make you think it's too bad, too far gone, too much. This cannot be repaired. Satan wants to immobilize you by guilt and sin. You have to ask whose voice are you listening to? Judas listened to worldly grief, to the voice of Satan. And you see where that got him. And God, Peter listened to the voice of God who sacrificed his own son so that those sins could be washed away and your guilt could be forgiven. I read an illustration about a Christian who was studying his Bible fervently all day and spending time in deep prayer. And at one point, he began to feel an overwhelmingly deep sense of guilt. This is just an illustration. It was Satan who had come. He had come to remind this Christian of all that he had done wrong. And he brought some scrolls with him. And he told the Christian that as he unrolled these scrolls, that in these scrolls are all of the sins you've ever committed. And the Christian man asked Satan, do you have any more scrolls or is that all of them? And Satan gleefully laughed saying, I've got more on you. And he went and got the rest of his scrolls and brought all of his scrolls that contained all of the sins of this Christian man who'd been just studying his Bible and in prayer all day. And he brought all those before him and the Christian man said, read them to me. And Satan went line by line, sin by sin, in every scroll, reading to him everything he had done in detail, all of his sins. And when he had finished, he rolled up all the scrolls and he stood there happy, full of himself, the devil did because he's got this mountain of sin and guilt against this guy who thinks he's going to be devoted to God and study his word and, and, and communicate, commune with him in prayer. And he's got this mountain of evidence against him laid out before him and he's gloating over the guilt of this Christian. But the Christian said to the devil, now go and write over Every single sin, these words, the blood of Christ. Because that's exactly what Jesus does to our sins. The Bible says in Psalm 103, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far He removes our transgressions from us. This is the gospel message that the blood of Christ has washed our sins away when we are united with Christ in baptism. baptism. You need to remember that the gospel is for Christians too. It's not just for the lost. It's for you and you may need to remember that the blood of Christ washes your sins away as well. We can't let Satan pull us away from God because of sin. Rather, we need to be drawn closer to God as a result of our sin, knowing he stands ready to forgive us. If you're not living faithful to Jesus today, I want to urge you, 
plead with you to return to him and be faithful. Don't let him take you out like he took out Judas. It may be in a different way, but he might take you out in the, still take you out away from God, pull you away from faith. And if you're not a Christian, you don't have access to this forgiveness. You, don't, you can't go to God in prayer and ask for forgiveness because you haven't been united with Christ in baptism and come in contact with the blood of Jesus. Blood of Jesus. So do like, uh, uh, do like uh, Peter said, what are you waiting for? Arise and be baptized. Wash your sins away, Acts twenty two sixteen. 16. You can do that today if you're ready. Maybe you need to study about that. Maybe you've got questions. Don't leave here a guilty distance from God. And don't leave here thinking you're too far gone and you can't be saved because of the blood of Jesus. You can be saved. If we can help you this morning, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing.